You see that stupid number in your checking account? It's called wasted potential. Now I'm gonna let you in on a little secret about something called the portfolio. And it's not gonna build itself, okay? Without you, it's just another number on a screen. Like a jungle full of bananas and no ape in sight. Well, I'm gonna take you to that jungle. Because in the case of these portfolios, it is gonna be up to each and every one of you. My speculative degenerates, my apes, and of course my apex, who will not hit the cell until your account either flies or flops and dies! Hello everyone and welcome back to Always Picking Electric Securities. It's your host Alex Marku. Today is November 24th, 2021. And on today's episode, I'll be breaking down the financial statements for the three stocks I have in mind for this portfolio. Then I'll recap my bets and give out some more picks for the upcoming Thanksgiving football and some more soccer matches. And then I'll wrap up today's episode with a lesson on the role women have played in the stock market. Financial disclaimer. Since this is an investing podcast, I will give out the disclaimer that everything I do on this podcast has the potential to reach 100% loss. Welcome back apes and retail investors that think alike. On today's investing segment, I'm going to run through the financial statements of ComputerShare, Overstock, and Chegg. And then after breaking down what I view as important off of these financial statements, I'm going to let you know what I might be adding for this portfolio. I don't think I'll be adding anything this upcoming week because Thursday the stock market's going to be closed because of Thanksgiving. And then on Friday the stock market's going to be closing early. So just to make things a little bit easier, I'm going to be buying the shares next week but I'll be making my decision this week. Before we hop into the number crunching and all the mundane financial statement talk of these three stocks, let me give a quick update on this APE's portfolio. For the stock and options segment, including the cash I still have in that account, it's valued at $546. The options I bought last week have been falling off a cliff, but, but I'm not even worried because the expiration date hasn't come close to hitting for one of them, And if I lose out all my money, it's okay, this was a call option, so at least I know exactly what I'll be losing. But the account is valued at $546, which is still good considering that I started it off with only $500, so I'm still up in that account. Now when I go down to my crypto balance, it's at $229, so my crypto balance is still struggling to make it back to its initial $250 investment, but that's okay, because I'm just holding this off for a long run anyways. Now I'm going to go to the gambling segment, and since I didn't have too hot of picks, the account actually devalued by about $15 to $20. So now the account is valued at $365. In total, the portfolio update for today is valued at $1,142. So now we're at 14%, and the last podcast update I had, I was about 19%. So I lost about 5% from the last episode. Oh well, that's not too big of a change. I'm okay with it. Now that the Apes portfolio update is out of the way, let's get into the stock talk. So the first company I'm going to want to talk about is ComputerShare. Now in my last episode, I gave a little brief description on what ComputerShare is. In this episode, it's going to be a little bit of a different description, and it's going to be a description off of their financial statements. One last little note before I dive into ComputerShare's financial statements is that their fiscal year ends on June. 
So what this means for computer share is that their first quarter is from July to September, their second quarter is from October to December, their third quarter is January to March, and then their fourth quarter, which is considered their business quarter, is from April to June. Whenever you look into any kind of company or a stock ticker, first, it's important to understand if they're a real company and a ticker out there because there are some proxy and fake companies that get put out on the exchanges. But if you invest in common names or you search your company's name and they have a reasonable amount of employees and they have some pretty good information on them, then you should be pretty solid. But aside from that, it's also important to understand your company's fiscal year. And based off of computer share, they view that most of their business comes from April to June, which coincides with the busy time of the tax year. And considering that they're in the financial services, this isn't really a surprising time for them to consider their fourth quarter. One reason it's important to understand your company's fiscal year is because if you're choosing a cyclical company, you're going to be relying a lot on their fourth quarter information. Also, you can compare quarter to quarter growth to see how a company is doing from a year ago. An easy way to figure out when their company's fourth quarter ends is just to look at their yearly income statements. Look at the year that it says it ends. Using ComputerShare as an example, I looked at the annual income statement on Yahoo Finance using the ticker CMSQF because that's the foreign ticker and I wanted to look at how the foreign company was doing and not the ADR. The date on the top of the income statement states June 30th, 2020. And what this date signifies is the ending period of what this income statement is gathering. Because like I've stated before in a previous episode, an income statement shows what a company has done over a certain period of time. So you can measure quarter to quarter growth, or you can measure yearly growth. Or if you wanted to, you can even compile data and measure every two quarters growth or start messing around with your own numbers. But at the end of the day, the important thing to remember is that when you're looking at an income statement, you're measuring the performance of the company on a timeline scale. So from some start period to an end period. Now for me, when I look at the income statement, the three things I care most about is the revenue, the cost of the expenses, and the net income. I also look at the earnings per share, and in some cases, the earnings per share might matter more than the net income. For companies that are negative in net income, you might want to start valuing them off of earnings per share, or seeing how close they are to getting a profitable income. But for computer share, what I did was compare their annual income statements, because I am long on this stock. I have a belief that in the future, and I mean 5 to 10 years, this stock could actually change the way we view brokerage systems. But without getting too ahead of myself, let me dive into their income statement and explain what their yearly growth has looked like. So starting in 2018, ComputerShare had revenues of $3.1 billion and their costs were $2.4 billion, which gave their net income of $408 million. They had an earnings per share of $0.55 cents that year. In 2019, they had a revenue of $3.3 billion, which increased by just about $200 million. Their cost also increased by about $200 million, but their net income increased to $593 million. And so did their earnings per share to $0.76 cents per share. In 2020, however, it was that COVID year. They still kept the revenues to $3.3 billion, and their cost rose slightly to $2.7 billion, but their net income got cut in half drastically. It went all the way to $338 million, and their earnings per share is now at $0.43. Cents. So if I were to use these three years' income statements off of ComputerShare, what it would tell me is that they're a pretty stable and consistent company. Also, try to remember that what this information is telling you is that for ComputerShare's fiscal year in 2018, 
These were the numbers they recorded within that certain time period. Since their income statement isn't really one to gloss over or raises any red flags, I'm going to be moving on to their balance sheet. Now a balance sheet is different from an income statement in terms of what it measures. Since the income statement measures the performance over a certain time period, whether it's annual, quarterly, or a certain amount of days if a company were to give you that, a balance sheet is a snapshot of what the company's strength is at any given moment. So what I normally do when I look at balance sheets is I look at quarterly balance sheets. The reason being is because this is a snapshot of the company's strength. So it doesn't matter if you look at the annual one or if you look at the quarterly one. And for the most part, the quarterly ones are going to be the ones that are kept most up to date. Because the annual ones, you have to wait until the company finishes their fourth quarter to release their balance sheet. Now there's a lot of indicators and things you can look at on a company's balance sheet, but the things I normally care about are the cash the company has on hand, their current assets, the total assets, the current liabilities, and the total liabilities. I normally don't care too much about anything else, and sometime in the future I'll break down balance sheet income statements and the statement of cash flows, so if you are curious about other factors, you can start diving into it. For now, I'm just going to focus on the five things I listed. So looking at ComputerShare's most recent quarterly balance sheet, it was dated June 30th, 2021. Their cash on hand was $816 million at the point, and their current assets are $1.7 billion. Their total assets are all the way up to $5.2 billion. Now if we go on the other side of the equation here, we're going to get their liabilities, which is what I care more about. The shareholders' equity I don't care too much about, but that is an important field because it makes up the balance sheet, of course. And for those of you beginning, a simple formula in the balance sheet is that the total assets are always going to be equal to the shareholders' equity plus the total liabilities. If what I just said confused you, just ignore it. I'm going to be explaining it later with one of my ratios. But jumping back to that balance sheet, the current liabilities ComputerShare had as of June 30, 2021 was $995 million dollars and the total liabilities they had was $2.97 billion. And the total liabilities they had was $2.97 billion. Now I'm going to be using this balance sheet to generate two ratios that to me are very important. Or at least they're ratios that I truly understand and that's why they're important to me. There's a ton of ratios out there that you can use, but if you don't really understand what the ratio is, I recommend you stay away from it until you can understand it. The first ratio I want to look at for computer share is their current ratio. I believe in some of the prior episodes when I talked about earning calls, I've mentioned what the current ratio is, but I'll do it again here because it's something very easy to forget. What you do for a current ratio is you take all of their current assets and divide it by the current liabilities. What you want in an ideal situation is for the number to be above 1. In computer shares case, I would take the $1.7 billion of current assets and divide it by the $995 million of current liabilities. What I would get is 1.71. Now what this number means is that for every dollar of liability that ComputerShare owes, they have a dollar and 71 cents worth of assets to cover the costs. The reason you use this measurement with the current assets and the current liabilities, because whenever the word current is on a balance sheet as opposed to long-term or non-current, it means it's within that one business year cycle. So if you saw something as current liabilities, it means there's loan payments that the company is going to have to be making within that year. Because it's current, it's within one year of the business cycle. 
So this ratio helps paint a picture for how a company can cover their upcoming debt within the coming year. For computer share, it looks like it's pretty good for the upcoming year because they have an extra 71 cents to cover their liabilities. If I wanted to do something even cheekier, I would take their cash and divide it by the current liabilities instead. This number speaks to even higher volumes to me. Because if you take all of ComputerShare's current cash and divide it by their current liabilities, you get 82 cents. Now what this 82 cents means is that for every dollar of liability, ComputerShare has 82 cents worth of cash to actually pay it off. So worst case scenario, if ComputerShare couldn't sell off any assets and they had to pay with only cash, they wouldn't be able to make their payments. But considering that's a very highly unlikely scenario, this is a pretty good number to have if you ask me, because it's a really close number to one, which would mean that they have almost one-to-one -one cash to cover all of their current liabilities, and they've still got other current assets off to the side of their balance sheet. The next ratio that I wanted to break down is called the debt ratio. Now what you do for this one is you take the total liabilities, and you take all of the total liabilities, current and long-term, and you divide it by the total assets. What you're gonna get is you're gonna get a number between zero and one. Now what you can do is you can view this number as a percentage, and what this percentage will tell you is how much is this company funded on its debt, and how much of it is funded off of its equity. In ComputerShare's case, this ratio is 57%. So this means for ComputerShare's business and operations to be maintained, 57% of it, according to June 30th, 2021, was being funded by debt, and then the other 43% is being funded by shareholders' equities, which is just another fancy term for the common stock in the company. So those are the two ratios I like to use when I look at a balance sheet to determine a company's well-being. If I can see how they're able to pay off their debt in the upcoming year, and how they're being funded in terms of debt to equity, it gives me a good idea of how the company is running and what I should be expecting before I invest into this company. Now, I'm not going to lie to you and say I implore this method every single time when I make my investments, but for this podcast, I have obvious reason to do my research first. Now, it's also important for me to note that these ratios don't really mean much if you're not comparing it with something else. So typically, you should compare these ratios with the industry average for what stock you're looking at. So if you're looking into retail stocks, compare the retail industry average, and then you can get an idea for it. Or if you're comparing two stocks that are similar within the industry, compare those two current ratios. These ratios shouldn't make or break your decision-making skills, but it should help because it provides more transparency into the investment you're just about to make. It's nice making an investment knowing what you're getting yourself into, or at least being halfway prepared as opposed to being only 25% or 1% prepared. Remember, in an investment, you can't ever know everything that's going to happen. But you sure as hell can use the process of elimination. Remember when you were in school taking that exam, not knowing the answer? You cross off the two stupidest answers first, and then you have a 50-50 shot. By learning how to at least understand even to just the basic level how to read these financial statements, you can help yourself with this process of elimination cycle. Now one last thing I want to touch upon for computer share that can't really be found on the financial statements and has to be more of a wrinkle brain thought that you have on your own while you're just driving around and thinking about stuff is the comparison of market caps. And what I specifically want to compare the market cap of computer share to is the DTC. Now last episode, I believe I said DTC and I think I also said DTS by accident. 
But what the DTC is, and more specifically the DTCC is, is a Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation. This is that one company I was essentially telling you about that essentially holds onto the shares of the stock market and they help aid in terms of trading. Now, the reason I bring this company up is because computer share is essentially just a smaller version of this. It's almost like if you were to compare the Starbucks giant to a small coffee shop off a cliffside village that has like a population of 600 people. And you might think that's a drastic comparison, but I'm being serious because the market cap of computer share is about eight and a half billion dollars. And then the market cap for this DTCC, which is a private company, let me tell you, so you don't get financial statements released out, was about $46.9 trillion in 2018. That's the last time I can find an updated valuation for this. So $46.9 trillion is the total assets the DTCC has, which essentially is the market valuation for this private company, because they are just a shareholding company. So they hold on to these shares so they can be traded. And then they provide the clearing and settlement of transactions within these financial markets. So why do I think that computer share is eventually going to blow up? Because I think in the future, people are going to want more transparency. And there's no way that this DTCC is going to become a public company. Because something just tells me that the 1% don't want to tell you exactly how the money inflows. And if the people truly want this, what they're going to be doing is directly registering shares through computer share or asking to directly register shares. And by doing this, what's going to happen is the shares are going to be taken off of the DTCC's books and they're going to be put into transfer agents that actually can directly register shares. Because their business model isn't to directly register your shares. It's not to care about the retail investor or the one solo investor. And really for their books and revenue, it's about trading transactions. Because the more trades that occur, the more pennies they get per their buck. If you've ever seen the movie Office Space, you know that little scheme the people run where they steal pennies off of small little transactions that occur? Well, the DTCC doesn't steal these pennies because for them, that's called commission. So if you want to live in a world of finance where you can see how this money works and how it gets routed, people are eventually going to request the shares to be through a transfer agent. That is more of a public company. And would you look at that? ComputerShare just so happens to be a public company. Sure, they're in Australia, but like I've said in my description before, they've already connected their ties to markets all around the world. And they're still a young $8.5 billion company. I did the fun little math with a calculator, and I took the DTCC's market cap and divided it by that of computer share. And this depository trust clearing corporation is 5,500 times larger than computer share. It's definitely a long shot, don't get me wrong, but considering that this private company is 5,500 times larger than this public one, I think there's plenty of room for this public one to grow. And if it can take even small bits of the share away from the DTC, I'll definitely hold this for the long haul. So for me, ComputerShare's balance sheet looks pretty strong. Their income statement might be a little bit boring and steady, but at least their balance sheet looks pretty strong. And I tried looking on their statement of cash flows, but I couldn't gather much information. They had a couple acquisitions and some issuance of common stock, but aside from that, they didn't have too much information. So I really wasn't going to gather too much off of that, aside from the fact that they're cash flow positive. So for now, I'm just going to keep an eye on that and make sure that they're not going to go negative in cash flows. 
The next stock's financial statement that I'll want to try and break down will be Overstock. I'll be breaking it down the same way I did with ComputerShare, so it's going to sound roughly familiar, except for the numbers are going to be different, and my explanation for what I think about these numbers will vary as well. For starters, before I dive into the income statement, Overstock's fiscal year ends December 31st. This means that their first quarter is January through March, their second quarter is April through June, their third is July through September, and then obviously how I said the last one's October to December. And what you'll notice is that their most important quarter aligns right with most of other retail's most important quarter, which is the winter seasons, because that's when everyone spends. Because that's when everyone spends. There's Christmas, Hanukkah, Thanksgiving, all of these holidays. And for an online e-commerce retailer, these holiday seasons are a perfect time to boost your revenues. Now looking into Overstock's annual income statement, I did the same thing by paying attention just to the revenue, the costs, the earnings per share, and their income. I looked at their income statements from 2018 to 2020, just like I did for computer share. In 2018, Overstock's revenue was at $1.8 billion. The cost of operations was $1.4 billion. Now this will sound a little odd when I say that their net income was negative $204 million, because you might think, isn't $1.8 minus $1.4 at least $400 million? And the answer is yes, but the costs I'm looking at are the operational expenses. You see, after these operational expenses, there's something called gross profit. And after the gross profit, there's still some expenses that have to take place. Typically, it's the expenses that pay anyone at the admin level or at higher up levels. And it's also expenses that don't necessarily contribute to the operational expenses. I like to focus on the operational expenses because that's really what the company spends to keep their operations running. All the other expenses on the side can vary quarter to quarter, so I tend not to focus too much on that. But it is still important to understand how much of those are expenses, and if a certain quarter it rises too much, you might want to check into why. So, even though they had $1.8 billion in revenue, and their operational expenses were $1.4 billion, and their net income was $204 million in losses, their earnings per share was $4.28 in the negative. The following year in 2019, their revenues actually fell a bit. It went to $1.4 billion, and their cost of operations was $1.1 billion. The net loss was $121 million that year, so their earnings per share looked a little bit better to negative $3.46. On paper, it looks nice going from $4.28 to $3.46, but we're going to need a couple more years to truly tell if this trend is actually starting to take form. But the biggest positive note I can think of comes right here in 2020. Because for the 2020 year, Knowing what everyone knows happened, these guys, Overstock, were able to have a revenue of $2.5 billion, their costs rose all the way to $1.9 billion, but they were able to have a positive net income of $51 million. Not only that, their earnings per share were $1.25, positive. So it is still too early to tell if these guys have turned it around, but it is a sign of growth. And if the next earnings report for all of 2021 and the following year are positive, I can tell you that these guys are about to blow up. The reason being is because their operational expenses tend to stay the same with however much business input they have. Which makes me smile, because I know further down the line as this company gets bigger and they scale more, they can have other professionals come in and think of different ways to chip away at this operational expenses. And the thing is, you can chip away at your costs, and if they start to grow into a bigger giant like an Amazon, they're going to have that revenue. 
And I'm not gonna lie, I went on Overstock's website after I looked over the financial statements just to kind of get an idea for what they're like. It's essentially an Amazon, but they really want to hammer down at the fact that they sell home decor. They sell furniture, home appliances, and stuff like that, like I said. But I also went on there and saw that you can buy jewelry and all these high-end expensive watches. So they're setting up a high-end luxurious market. So if you want to think about it, this is an Amazon for luxury goods and regular standard goods that people just need for their homes. Because everyone needs a couch, everyone wants a dishwasher, and everyone needs a fridge. And they're trying to be the Amazon version of it. But you can't possibly get all that information from their income statement. How can you tell if this company truly is a growth company and if they're really growing and a good company? You have to look at all of the statements and then together it's like a puzzle. It's still an unfinished puzzle, but at least it's halfway done so you can kind of get an idea of what it's like. And by looking at Overstock's balance sheet, as of September 30th, 2021, they had about $512 million of cash on hand and their current assets were pretty much the same at $564 million. But their total assets were $1.06 billion. Hopping over to the other side of the equation, they had current liabilities of $302 million and their total liabilities were roughly the same at $355 million. Now if I break apart those ratios I was explaining earlier, their current ratio is 1.86. If you remember, computer shares was 1.71. Now these aren't good to compare together because they're not in the same industry, but it still gives you an idea for how strong Overstock's current ratio might be. You would want to compare this current ratio with the likes of other e-commerce players. So probably Amazon and Shopify and other ones like that. But it's still good to know that in the short run, which is a one-year business cycle most likely for them, they can cover off their liabilities. But the one thing that really stands out to me off of their balance sheet is their debt ratio. The ratio I was telling you that I also like to follow. Because their debt ratio is very small. Or I mean, to me it's small. I haven't compared it to the industry average or anything like that, but this is a good sign for me. If you were to take their total liabilities and divide it by the total assets, you would get a ratio of 33%. This means that 33% of overstock as of September 30th in 2021 is being funded by just debt. That's really good because that means 67% of it is funded by equity. With the income statement showing a potential for a trend in the upward trajectory and their balance sheet being as strong as it is, at least in the current run, it's good to know that in the future they might not have to worry about a debt problem. I'll show you on the next stock example what a future debt problem might look like. And I'll show you how you can use the balance sheet and the statement of cash flows to kind of find this. But before I move over to Chegg, I do want to talk about the statement of cash flows for Overstock. As of 2020, their operating cash flows were $126 million positive, their investing cash flows were $23 million negative, and their financing cash flows were $231 million. This netted them $519 of cash. If you want to think of a company having all of their cash in a huge bathtub that has holes in it and it's draining all of this cash, this is what a statement of cash flows tells you. It tells you how fast this cash is draining. And it also tells you if the bathtub is being overflown with cash. In the operating section for the statement of cash flows, it lets you know how the business's cash flows are moving within the business operations. So for terms of overstock, when they sell all of their items through this website, and offer commission charges on advertising and all this other stuff, they're going to track certain cash flows and then they're going to relay that information on this statement. 
For the investing section of the cash flow statement, this shows you how the business chooses to invest their money. So if they choose to purchase another acquisition or buy land or buy some more property or something like that for future use, they would put this under investing. Now for the financing section, this can be anything from the issuance of common stock to getting more debt from loans or anything like that. And this lets you know how the company is being funded to stay alive. So if you wanted further proof that Overstock is being funded by their equity, you could look at the statement of cash flows for 2020 because their financing sections was $231 million. And a lot of that came from the issuance of common stock, which by issuing more common stock in the financing section for cash flows, instead of asking for a loan and getting more debt, they actually increased their shareholders equity portion on the balance sheet instead of the liabilities section. So that's why their debt ratio is so low because they seem to issue more common stock. And since the price has surged recently, that's also helped the equity section look a lot larger. And after looking at all three financial statements for Overstock, I'll give you what my two cents are on it. I believe this stock is showing signs of growth, especially going from an earnings per share of negative $4.28 to $1.25. It'll be important to see what happens for the next year or two with this company, because if they start growing even larger, Wall Street eventually will have to start paying attention to this stock. And if Wall Street hops in late, which could be a $300 price range, and I'm just throwing that number out there, then they can make this stock a lot larger. But without the reliance on Wall Street, I think that they've got a nice income statement trajecting upwards, at least in a year-to-year -year growth. And if you were to look at their balance sheet, they're not funded by debt, they can cover all of their current liabilities, and their statement of cash flows aren't too concerning. They're net positive in cash flows, and there's no red flags yet. So for me, with this company, the bathtub is full of cash, it's draining out at a nice and steady pace, and they're showing potential to renovate the whole bathroom. So, take it as you will, but I think it's a very undervalued stock. For this portfolio, it might be a little bit overpriced and on the high end. I know I did spend $200 for GameStop, but that's different. Um, I'm probably going to be buying this stock on a personal level, but for this portfolio, I think I'm going to be sticking more with computer share. I might put an option play on this at some point if the stock continues to go down. So that's my two cents on it. I'm probably not going to be adding it on this portfolio anytime soon, but I do like this as a play, and I do think they have a lot of potential. So now let me move on to Chegg, which they had a huge sheer drop, and that's the main reason I'm looking into them. So let me start with their income statement. For Chegg, I decided to start off in 2017, so I'm going to be giving you an extra year of data. For their revenue in 2017, they had $255 million, and it cost them $80 million. They wound up having a net income of negative $20 million, which gave them an earnings per share of negative 20 cents per share. In 2018, they had a revenue of $321 million, and their cost was still $79 million. So their costs stayed roughly the same, while their revenue increased by about $70 million. But their net income was still negative $14 million, and they had an earnings per share of negative 13 cents. Moving on to 2019, their revenues were $410 million, and their costs were $92 million. This is almost double the revenue from 2017, and their costs only rose about $12 million. But their net income was still negative $9.6 million, and their earnings per share is negative 8 cents. So if we go all the way to 2020 of last year, their revenue was $644 million, and the cost went all the way to $205 million. This cost doubling might be a concern, but they also got a huge jump in their revenues. Even with that all being done, their net income was still negative 6.2 million, which made their earnings per share negative 5 cents. 
Now I'm going to try and break some positive light in something that doesn't look like it's too good of an income statement. Because their revenue trajectory seems to be up, while their cost trajectory seems to maintain the same. Aside from in 2020, it seems like they must have had some more expenses, but who didn't during the COVID year? Also, their earnings per share might be negative, but it's slowly creeping to zero. And if you're a believer in buying stocks that have potential for the future when they have a negative earnings per share, then by all means this might be your stock. But I'm not going to tell you that this is a solid buy. At least not like overstock and computer share. I definitely don't have the same intuition feeling, but I will tell you this, in my personal account, I'm probably going to have a small play in it, because I am a little bit of a degenerate, and I think the stock has potential to jump from $25 at least back to $100 at some point. And I want to lock in some of those gains. But there are definitely some red flags that I will point out in their balance sheet and the statement of cash flows. For the balance sheet, they have cash of $1.7 billion and their current assets are $1.8 billion. Chegg's total assets come out to about $3.2 billion and then on the other side of the equation, their current liabilities come out to $133 million while the total liabilities come out to $1.8 billion. So by using these numbers, I can get a current ratio off of them. And something actually comes out pretty alarming. The current ratio might look good, but to me, I don't know if it is truly that good. Because if you were to take their current assets, which is $1.8 billion, and divide it by the current liabilities, which is just $133 million, you have a ratio of $13.53. So this means for Chegg, every $1 of liability they have this year, they have $13.53 to cover it. Why am I, con why am I so concerned with this? Well, because their total liabilities are $1.8 billion. So if $133 million of it is current, that means $1.8 billion is a future liability that they're going to have to account for. And I know they have the cash right now on hand to cover it, but if you also look at their debt ratio, it's about 0.56, which is 56%. It's roughly the same as computer share, but computer share at least has a more steady income statement and they have more assets on hand. So the fact that Chegg is being funded more than 50% by debt, and a lot of this debt is going to have to be owed in the future, not in the current run, is one red flag that I think they have. It's not a red flag to get you to buy or sell even, but it is a red flag that I think should be pointed out. And if you're a long-term holder, it's something you should keep your eye on, and if you're someone who wants to sell as well, it's something you need to keep your eye on to determine if you should sell. But with the price being this low as it is right now, I think you should hold on and hope for another spike up. I would say their statement of cash flows is pretty steady. It's nothing too strong, but it's nothing weak either. You see, their operating cash flows at least are positive, so that's a good sign. And then their investing cash flows were negative. This isn't a bad thing, because after looking at their investing cash flows, I looked up to see what kinds of companies Chegg would acquire, and it seems like they buy out a lot of these math companies. So it seems like they're building on top of their website, which is not a bad thing at all. The one area again that raises this concern for me is the liabilities section. Remember how in that balance sheet I said the total liabilities was $1.8 billion? Well, in the statement of cash flows for 2020, you can look in the financing section and you would see that $445 million of cash flows were made to long-term debt. The only reason their financing section was positive is because they had about a billion dollars of issuance of common stock. Now, I'm not going to say the D word, which is dilution, but if you issue common stock, if you have a lot of long-term debt, 
I just hope the stock that they're issuing is not convertible in the future. Because if these loans can be converted to shares in the future, that's even further dilution. And with more dilution of shares, a company's share price can go down. If this D word is confusing you in dilution, just think of it as denominator. And think that every time a company offers shares in the market, it increases this denominator number. It's not a bad or a good thing to say, because it depends on how the market reacts to it. If there's enough demand, even with the issuance of this, then the stock won't matter because the demand's gonna still be there. The problem lies when there's not demand for a stock because this denominator number keeps getting bigger and it's gonna push the price down. With all this being said about Chegg, the one thing that really catches my eye is the steady and gradual increase in their earnings per share. Even though it was negative 20 cents in 2017, as of 2020, it was negative five cents. They've been able to increase their earnings by four times. And from being a user of Chegg, I know that they offer a very important service. And that's one in helping you actually pass your classes. Because look, at the end of the day, I remember when I went to college, I paid attention to the classes and subjects I actually wanted to learn. But when there was a subject I could give two shits about, you know what I did? I created a Chegg account. So there's definitely a demand for Chegg in my book. And unless school goes away, I think Chegg's gonna stay around for a while. And definitely unless cheating goes away, Chegg is definitely going to have a business model to rely upon. Now they're not going to want you to cheat, but they're also not going to kick you off for cheating because then that would destroy their business model. That would be like Starbucks saying, we want you to be healthier and we're going to stop serving you coffee. Get the hell out of here. They would never do that. So as I'm nearing the end of this investing segment, I want to give just a quick recap on the important things I said over the past half hour. I dove into the income statement, balance sheet, and statement of cash flows for computer share, overstock, and Chegg. And for this account, I'm definitely looking into buying computer share for next week and possibly Chegg as well. Overstock I'll keep as a side play, and I might look into buying an option at some point down the line. But for now, it's a bit too pricey for this portfolio, so I'm going to keep it off to the side and I'm going to invest in it in my personal account instead. I tried to break down the financial statements in as simplistic terms as I could, and I hope you were able to at least get a better understanding of how you could use them. If you haven't yet, don't give up. Just keep going strong, and I promise I'll get better at explaining things. I'll eventually learn how to explain things so easily that I could explain it to the little kid. For now, I'm just stuck with giving you numbers and ratios and trying to explain why I have this certain gut feeling about a stock. So until next time, everyone, ape out. Welcome back, Degenerates, and anyone that likes to just listen to the sports gambling segment of my podcast. Today, I'm going to recap the two bets I created for Monday and Tuesday, and the first 14 pick parlay I had that did not hit, unfortunately. But I'm not going to let a bad day of gambling stop me from gambling even more because we've got some turkey football and some more UEFA soccer games and a couple basketball games all coming up Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So for my bet picks, let me get straight into them. For my Monday round robin, I had a mix of some basketball games and the Monday night football game. Unfortunately, that round robin only went four for eight and I wound up losing $4.49 on it. So the four bets I had winning were the Bucks in the NBA to win by 12, the Sixers to straight up win against the Kings, 
Gonzaga in college hoops to win by at least 34, and then the Buccaneers for Monday Night Football to win by at least 11. Those four hit, the rest of my bets did not. Moving on to my UEFA pick, I wound up doing even worse. This was just not a good slate of picking games for me. It happens, and it is what it is. For this slate, I wound up going 3 for 8, and by risking $28, I lost $9.11. The only bets that won was Manchester United winning, that won Malmo and Zenith draw, and Chelsea straight up winning. All the other teams unfortunately disappointed me. But it is what it is. And then I also said that I was going to try something new, which was a 14 pick parlay. I wound up picking the Heat to win by at least 10, the Knicks to win by at least 6, the Nuggets to cover a 6.5 point line, and then the Clippers to win by at least 4. The Heat wound up winning by just 8, so the parlay already dismantled instantly. I put a $5 bet on it though, and had this won, it would have won out $60. So if I take 60 divided by 5, I in theory can try this out 12 more times before I truly start losing money. Because if I try this out 12 times and win once, I break even. So since my last two bet slips essentially lost about $14 with the round robin picks and I lost $5 straight up on that 14 pick, I'm going to forget that I even made those picks and we're going to move straight on to Thursday Night Football on Thanksgiving. We're going to talk about some upcoming soccer games today. And then for Friday, I'm going to pick some NBA and college hoops games. I'm going to see if I can wipe that slate clean and get back in the green. So let's go, baby. So I'm going to be making three round robins, one for each day, one for today, one for tomorrow on Thanksgiving, and then one for Friday. The reason being is because on Friday, I'm going to be posting the episode for the podcast a little bit later than I normally do. And this is because I don't want to be recording on Thanksgiving dinner. I hope you can understand that. If not, I'll be better in the future, I promise. But let me get straight into my picks. So for today's round robin, I'm going to stick to soccer and I'm going to stay with the UEFA's Champion League. Even though yesterday's picks only went 3 for 8, I'm hoping I can turn my luck around and I'm going to stick with my intuition with all of the picks I make today. So these picks are going to be all for against the spread or the money line, whichever odds are better. I'm going to be picking Ajax against Besiktas, Inter Milan against Shakhtar Donetsk, I don't even know if I said that right, Borussia Dortmund over Sporting, Manchester City over PSG, I like Atletico Madrid over Milan, I also like Liverpool to beat Porto, and then I'm going to go with RB Leipzig over Club Brugge, and then to finish off the slate, I'm going to have Real Madrid covering their spread against Sharif. I know for a fact it's going to be Real Madrid having to cover this spread because they're going to be expected to win by at least more than a couple goals. So just a quick recap in case naming a lot of those teams confused you, my round robin slate is going to be having Ajax, Inter Milan, Borussia Dortmund, Manchester City, Atletico Madrid, Liverpool, RB Leipzig, and Real Madrid to either win or cover their spread, whichever odds are better. My second round robin slate I'm going to be creating is for tomorrow during Turkey Day. It's primarily going to be revolving around football, because why else would it not? And I've also picked three college basketball games that are going to be playing. For the football slate, I like the Bears, Cowboys, and Bills to cover whatever spread is set. And if one of these teams are an underdog, which I don't believe they will be, you can pick them as an underdog to just straight up win. I'll stick in the NFL with the over-unders as well. I like the Bears and Lions game to go under, 
and I like the Raiders and Cowboys game to go over. Now I found out when you do round robin betting, you can actually mix against the spreads with over and unders. You can't do that in regular parlay betting because it won't let you, but for some weird reason, with round robin, you can do it. So, we're going to stick with it. So those five selections are what I'm going to be choosing for the NFL games. I'm going to be going over to College Hoops to fill out three more picks so I can make an eight-pick round robin. I'll be picking Alabama, Kansas, and USC to respectively cover their spreads. So a quick recap on the picks I have for that slate are the Bears, Cowboys, and Bills to cover the spread in the NFL, the Bears and Lions game to go under on the total points, and the Raiders and Cowboys to go over on the total points. For college hoops, I have Kansas, Alabama, and USC to cover their spreads. Now my last bet slip I'm going to be submitting is going to be on Friday, and it's going to be compromised of strictly just basketball. Four games from the NBA and four games from college basketball. In the NBA, I'm going to be going with the Lakers, Bulls, Heat, and Bucks to cover their spreads. And for college basketball, I'm going to be going with Gonzaga, Kentucky, Purdue, and Tennessee to cover their spreads. So the next time you hear this beautiful voice recapping these picks, I will have risked at least $84 on these three round robin picks, $28 a piece on each one. I'll recap the picks on the next podcast and I'll let you know how they've won. The Friday round robin, I probably won't recap on Friday because I'm going to want to upload the episode before some games are over. So if the Friday round robin isn't done by the time I'm ready to post the episode, I'll recap that one on Sunday. But don't worry guys, because I'll definitely be able to find out if I was able to recover from the last slate of games or if I'm about to enter a dry spell. So that'll conclude the sports gambling segment for today, and I hope that you choose to do what you want with the three picks I made. Fade or follow, I hope you make some money regardless. Because for me, as long as you're making money, I'm happy. So until next time everybody, ape out. Hello class and welcome to today's teaching moment. On today's lesson, I'm going to talk about some key women investors that had an impact on the stock market and some current ones that have an impact on the stock market today. I know it might come off as a surprise to most of you guys, but women are investors too. And for the most part, according to statistics, they can actually tend out to be better traders because they handle it better emotionally. See, we're just ego driven and we just care about Wolf of Wall Street gains. As opposed to the contrary of what most Wall Street men want to say, women traders are not emotional traders. If you ask me, it's the shorts and anyone that just likes to gamble and gets mad when their bet doesn't go their way. Those are the true emotional traders. Women and men, they can each be emotional traders to their own level. Another important reason I've decided to talk about women investors, especially on today's date, is because tomorrow is Thanksgiving. And at least in my boat, I know what I'm truly thankful for, and that's my mom. Now I can't speak for everyone out there, but I hope that you have a person that you're thankful for. And if you do, you should tell them that you're thankful for them. For me, I'm thankful for the opportunity both my parents provided for me, but more importantly, the one that my mom gave me. And whether you want to admit it or not right now, women have always and will always have a huge impact on you.
I mean, you wouldn't even have been born had it not been for a woman. And yes, the other half of the equation is a man, but that's my point. If there's two halves to the equation, then let's talk about them both. And in the investing world, it's not just run by males. So with this lesson, I hope to at least show you that women can be great investors too. For women investing, my story begins in the 1880s. It was Mary Gage who was frustrated that she was being shut out of the stockbroking community and she couldn't trade like regular Wall Street people on the New York Stock Exchange. And what I mean by regular Wall Street people is white old guys. Now she went over to Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Elizabeth Cady Stanton financially was able to open up her own stock exchange. And she did this in the 1880s. You see, before this, women had to rely on men to invest for them. And these men would take off a huge commission fee. What Mary Gage talked to Elizabeth about was to cut out this middleman and to cut out these large commission fees. She essentially wanted to create access for women to be able to invest in the markets without such a crazy cost being tied to it because they were women. During the 19th century and the start of the 20th century, Mary Gage and her colleagues were able to create at least one exchange. So they were able to buy and sell stocks for clients. And they definitely didn't discriminate as much as the men but being the time back then, do you really think men went into these exchanges and said, oh look, a woman behind the counter, let me go buy some stock? I highly doubt it, unfortunately. But today's a new day and we live in a modern society. And even though there can be some improvements made, it's definitely progress from where we were years ago. And I hope that this society continues to improve because we've still got a long way to go in my opinion. Now even though the exchanges the women set up back then never amounted to become as big as the New York Stock Exchange, or probably still aren't up and running today, it at least started a movement, especially during a time that women were fighting for all suffrage and all types of freedom, they were exploring ideas of this financial freedom. So it's cool to see that they were trying this out. It is still sad to see that society thought of them as a joke, unfortunately. You see, most of society thought that women being stockbrokers at the time was just not right and it wasn't pure. Because of all these religious reasons, women couldn't be stockbrokers. But for some reason, men got a pass. And not that, but you know why. Because men wrote the rules. And that's why they wanted to get a pass. But despite society, but despite society hammering down to these women that they shouldn't be stockbrokers or pickers, they actually outperformed most of the market and most of the men which were their counterparties. Although there were only a handful of women like Elizabeth and Gage that opened up an exchange and started stock trading for women and men, the amount of progress made from the 1880s hasn't been too significant. According to a Morningstar article, women manage about less than 2% of the actual mutual fund assets. And are you ready for the sad stat of the day? You're more likely to find a global hedge fund run by a white dude named Paul then you are to find one run by a woman of any name. And I'm here to tell you that even though the progress for women being in the investing field hasn't been exploding exponentially as it should have, it's never too late to change. And it's definitely never too late to start thinking as a society differently about how and who really invests. Because everyone deserves the chance. And for today's lesson, I'm going to be talking about three women investors that I kind of did a small amount of research on. They're Geraldine Weiss, Lauren Simmons, and Kathy Woods. There's probably more prominent female players out there in the investing market, but I'm not going to lie to you. I'm a regular white guy, and I don't really know too much about the women investors. 
As a matter of fact, the last two days is probably the most I've ever learned about women in the investing field. But as I go on now with this podcast, I'll be sure to keep an eye. But as I go on now with this podcast, I'll be sure to keep an eye. But as I go on now throughout this podcast, I'll be sure to keep an eye on whether certain things were done by women or men. And to try and find out more of what the women's roles were. So the first woman investor I'll talk about is Kathy Woods. She's been in the business field since about 1977 and she's been hopping around from firm to firm working different types of positions and jobs. She's been known to make some bold claims and for some dumb reason during 2007 and 2008, newspapers and headlines decided that they should say that she was underperforming the market during a market crash. What kind of newspapers write that someone else isn't performing well and even worse than the actual market crash during a recession? That seems pretty low and why specifically did they attack Kathy Woods? I'm sure there were some men they could have found out there that were performing way worse. And to claim that someone's performing bad during a recession, that's just pitiful. But she didn't let that stop her. As a matter of fact, in 2014, she opened up her own ETF. You know how I was talking about the S&P 500s, the Nasdaq, and the Dow? Well, she created her own ETF, and it was called the ARK Fund. She has these ETF funds, and they all represent different things. One of the ARC funds she has is called ARC Innovations, another one is ARC AI, but what she's really good at is picking stocks and raising the value of these ETFs. In 2014, a majority of these ETFs were valued around the $20 range. Nowadays, they're valued anywhere from $105 to $150. So that's a pretty big jump for 7 years. This ETF has only been alive for 7 years, and most of its returns are at least 5x at the minimum. Not too bad for a woman investor. And I'm willing to bet that the same articles that wrote about her in 2007 and 2008 having a worse portfolio than the actual recession itself were the same ones touting her for being the best stock picker of 2020. It's a pretty funny world the media lives in. They tend to forget things day to day, but they hold on to things when they really want to bring it out. My next beautiful lady I would like to talk about is Geraldine Weiss, and I hope I said her name right. But she was one of the first female investors that showed the public that women can actually invest. And she did it in such a sneaky, breaky way. She had all this experience in the finance world and business applications, but she couldn't land a job at any firm. I really wonder why. And she did what all boss ladies do. They start their own things. In 1966, she started writing her own newsletters, And basically what that is, is what I'm doing on this podcast, but instead, you write it as a blog. She was handing out stock picks and then reasons for why she was picking out these companies. She was also giving out the fundamental reasons and how she's going to be running a portfolio. Does that sound familiar? What's great is from 1966 to 1977, she signed off these newsletters as G. Weiss. So men, if they wanted to, could assume that she was a guy. You know, because they never saw the first name, they just saw a G. Weiss. And because this was in the stock picking industry, it couldn't possibly be a female. Well, it wasn't until 1977 that she got invited to an interview on PBS. And this is where she actually showed the world who she was. Imagine dropping the mic like that. Saying, oh, you've enjoyed your 15-20% to returns over the last years on average? Well, I did that. A woman investor. Would you look at that? 
Her stock picking strategies primarily revolve around dividend value investing. In fact, she even has the nickname the Grand Dame of Dividends because of her stock picking strategies. And if you want to follow the newsletter, it still exists today and it's called Investment Quality Trends. She retired in 2002, as she has every right to, but I'm sure she still tries to help women investors in any way she can. And now the last badass babe I wanted to talk about was Lauren Simmons. This girl is straight up raw. She's one of the youngest black female workers to work on the New York Stock Exchange. And she started working there at the age of 23. To put this into context, I only started this podcast at the age of 24. So I still got plenty of ways to catch up. And the one thing that's really cool about her backstory is that she was hired by Rosenblatt Securities in 2017 with a degree in genetics. She had zero background in finance in anything like that. The manager at the security firm just saw that she was a good person and that she was a hard worker. And what he said at that firm is that he needs analysts who are good at what they do in their job and good as people. And he gave this girl a shot and boy did she blow it out of the park. Because you see, in order to get on the New York Stock Exchange, you need to be referred to it by a broker. The New York Stock Exchange doesn't hire people like a company does. The New York Stock Exchange instead works as a recruitment center. In terms of sports, it's almost like these brokers are colleges and high schools, and the New York Stock Exchange is the big leagues. That's the NFL, that's the major leagues, and that's the NBA. And all these little broker firms have all these players and eventually, they might get called up to the New York Stock Exchange. Well, can you imagine the pressure she faced when she was working at 23 years old on the New York Stock Exchange with all these 40 to 50 year old white guys yelling and screaming stalker ticker symbols? I mean, I personally would love that, but still, for her being the only woman there, to not even have someone to look at and at least ask what they went through. She's only the second black woman in the New York Stock Exchange history to even be able to trade on that floor. So it's not like there's much from the past to go off of. She's literally writing history right now as we speak. And it's happening in present day, ladies and gentlemen. So clearly, there's a tide that's shifting. Now, I wish I could give you out more information on women investors, but I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know too much about it. Most of the investing books I've read have come from your stereotypical white males. I mean, for crying out loud, my two mentors are Warren Buffett and Peter Lynch, both of which are 55, 60-plus-year-old white males who have white-graying hair right now, or no hair at all. But I will promise you this. From here on out, this podcast is going to be a lot more split up, because I believe in investing for everyone. I believe that everyone deserves a true opportunity in these financial markets, because at the end of the day, you don't get to choose how you're born. You should, however, be able to choose what stocks you invest in. I'll wrap up the short lesson I had today on the women investors with a LinkedIn paragraph summary that Lauren Simmons has. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read the parts that seem mostly motivational. And this is primarily to all the female investors and any of the female listeners out there. Because I want you to feel like you can invest in stocks and understand market systems just as much as men can. And this is what she says. The advice I give women is just be confident in yourself and in your talents and gifts. We are capable to be in whatever field we want to be in and have the work ethic 
to be equally compared with males in the work field. I believe that we live in a great time where phenomenal women who are doing great things despite society's aspects on the traditional women. I see a lot of women building their empires, going for their dreams, and just speaking up about issues that need to be talked about. As a keynote speaker that has begun circling the globe, I express that this is such a significant factor that young women are seeing how successful they can be when they are confident with themselves and just go for it. You have one life to live, why not do something you love? This is the badass babe that at some point in the future will be running the New York Stock Exchange. But what I like her about the most, outside from just working on the New York Stock Exchange, which I would love to do, is her demeanor. Because in an interview, she states that she believes that the status quo can change. She says that she believes it can start with the next generation. And she even goes as far to say that if all these old establishments keep touting diversity and diversity because they know it's a great PR move, but they don't actually do shit about it, the upcoming generation is actually going to do something about it. And that's what scares these old boomer heads. Because look, in reality, we're going to act out. And we're going to act out to get things done. And if they want to sit on their ass, so be it. But we're going to put them out in the sun so they can get a nice tan while they're at it. And then we're going to fill up the house with some new blood. And then we're going to make sure that the ship is running in the right direction. Lauren Simmons said that if these establishments don't start creating more diversity and they don't actually start meaning what they speak, that we'll just start creating our own hedge funds. And then we'll start including it with the people we want. We won't say look at how diverse we are and have a picture of a colored person on our brochure while 80% of our staff is white. She claims that others will eventually get so sick of the old ways that they will be willing to make change. And I say that she is right because she is one smart lady and I see the same thing happening now in the future. Well class, tomorrow is Thanksgiving so make sure you go find the one person that you're really thankful for and you let them know it. For me... It's definitely my mother, and since we all came from a mom, unless yours is no longer here, which I'm sorry for, we all have a mom to be thankful for. Which is why today's lesson, no matter how short it was, and I apologize it wasn't longer, was on women as investors. Make sure you're thankful for all the women out there. If you've made it this far into the podcast, I just want to say thank you, love you, and until next time, ape out.
What are you still doing here? Have you said thank you yet? 